everyone, welcome back. Uh, this is One Step Beyond, and my name is Aram Arslanian. Today's show is with a longtime colleague, friend, someone that I have so much respect and admiration for, and also someone who has a, a neat life story and a great outlook. So with that, Cynthia, welcome to the show. Hi, Aram. Thanks for having me today. All right. So for the uninitiated, for those who don't know, who are you and what do you do? My name is Cynthia Klut. My pronouns she, her, and her. My day job is I'm the Chief Operating Officer for Clark Wilson LLP. I don't always say my day job because that is a big part of what I do, but I do lots of other little bits and pieces as well, like volunteering and other ways to give back. Okay, let's, before we get back to the COO role, um, because that is always one that I love talking about, what else do you do? So what's, what's the stuff outside of the role? So outside the role, I started sort of getting to the stage of my life where I didn't have to worry about um, ferrying kids around anymore and stuff like that. And I started volunteering with new immigrants um, because it's something that I can give back in the context of my um, day job as well, my role that way, where most of my volunteering is helping them find their path in Canada and into the workplace, whether it be about culture or finding a job. Sometimes it's just even practicing English and business conversation. Um, so that's hugely fulfilling and it's a variety. Can we, can we touch on that further? Absolutely. So what's the organization you're a part of? Um, MosaicBC.org. Um, They're a not-for-profit based in Burnaby. And they do all sorts of work with new immigrants, refugees. Um, I can't even name everything on their roster. It's mentoring, resume skills. English language skills and so much more. So why that? Why did you choose to get involved with that? Because I had walked the path of an immigrant and I always say a very privileged path because of course I grew up in a country where English was one of the first languages and I had barriers and boundaries coming into Canada being English first language, went to an English school, although I grew up speaking other languages as well. And there's a perception around Canadian experience that I think everybody still struggles with today as new immigrants, even though our policy in Canada is to welcome immigrants because we have a skill shortage, a huge skill shortage. It's interesting you say that. From my perspective, Canadians seem to have a reputation of being so welcoming, so friendly, very, very polite. So. I think from like an outside perspective, people might be like, oh, the path for immigration in Canada, once, once you've been able to successfully immigrate here, it must be quite a different experience than anywhere else. You know, when I was working um, as a therapist, I worked in an organization that also had uh, something like Mosaic, like you're discussing, uh, supporting uh, immigrant work. And when I was w talking to the people that worked on that side of the organization, they're like, oh, like Canada is tough. Like it's very, very tough. And British Columbia can be extremely, extremely tough for immigrants. Um, the idea that uh, it's this uh, easy path here is an illusion, absolutely. Yeah. So what are some of the things that when you're working um, with these new immigrants, uh, what are some of the things that you are seeing them experience and that you're able to help them with? Well, that's absolutely an emotional roller coaster. And I always sort of take it from the perspective of, I felt that roller coaster, so of course I can approach it with a lot more empathy. My roller coaster wasn't as rough as some of 
the the people stories that you hear. I think most of us have been in a taxi or an Uber and you get chatting with that person and hear that they're highly qualified from other countries. So I always feel the best I can do is listen to what they need at that point in time. There is somebody I worked with that really just wanted to practice English. And we were just practicing interview questions to help give them that confidence to go for the interview and feel that they'd answered the question as fully as they could in English, because of course, not their first language. For other people, that's just sort of saying, you know, it's okay. It is ups and downs. It's a roller coaster. This too shall pass. Then I've had sort of work where there's real practically looking at the resume, even though they've had resume coaching and sort of giving them um, like, let's talk a little bit about this and transferable skills. Like, I don't see that you've written this in your resume, but I've spoken to you now for X number of weeks, so many conversations. I really see this. Let's put this in the resume because that will help. Uh, One of my uh, mentees was taking a little while to find a job, so went off volunteering. And it's a two-way street every time. I learn from every single person that I've worked with through the process and how she was able to put all that uh, volunteer work onto her resume now to it's not bolster the resume it's authentic it's real experience but someone might be afraid to put that there because it's not paid work yeah yeah, yeah. but it's work it's using those skills and that's where i guess there's just a little bit of confidence building in that for somebody that you're chatting to because they don't know what is expected or what they can put mm-hmm. on a resume. Well, give me an example. What would be something of unpaid work that you would encourage someone to put on, on a resume? Well, this person in particular that I'm thinking of was helping with the film festival downtown Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's logistics involved. There's client service, customer service. Uh, you know, it can be anything from ushering people to their seats or helping them sort out their tickets. That's client service. Totally. And something that stands out to me, too, is when we're hiring and I see someone has volunteer time on there, I'm like, oh, this is a person who's willing to do something that they get nothing out of. Like they just want to they just want to help something happen and they're willing to see it through. So they're not just like a well-wisher. Yeah. They're someone who's actually involved and like, you know, getting something over the line, like a film festival. That's like hard, hard, hard. There's so much involved. And you have to kind of be from like beginning to end willing to give a lot of time, like stick handle the puck, the very Canadian term, handle, handle a lot of stuff. So when I see volunteer stuff on there, I take it seriously. Like that's super cool. Absolutely. When you started doing this, like were you given any kind of training? Like, hey, this is how you mentor someone or this is how you coach someone or did you just kind of figure it out? A little bit of both. Um, so there is a mentor onboarding. Uh-huh which it's so long ago now, I can't remember specifically what we went through, but I remember it was a day at their offices, a Saturday, all the new mentors got together, we got to learn a little bit about each other. And um, just some of the sort of activities and exercises that we do were really helping us find empathy versus sympathy. Yeah. Which, I mean, for most of us, you say, you say empathy versus sympathy, yeah, everybody knows the definition. But it's very different, sort of trying to feel and be in someone else's shoes. Mm, totally. 
I wanted to come back to empathy. There's a, a way that I kind of encourage people to frame up empathy, but let's let's get back to it. So you learn some basic stuff on, yeah. on day one, but then you're like, you've got these people that are like, hey, what do we do? So what did you do? Well, so the way that the program that I'm in, you get matched for sort of a three month period, or you can do a one-off um, mentorship session. And they work hard to try and match your skills with um, the newcomer's skills or so you can help direct. But often you get a resume and there was one where I literally looked at that. I have no idea how to help this person. But it's a one hour conversation. And if nothing else, it's an opportunity for me to learn more about them. And maybe I can give something back. So when we got on our call and everything, it was like, I'm not sure what I can give you today, but I'm here for you, mm -hmm. was how I approached it. I felt afterwards that I'd actually left them with just one or two little nuggets that they didn't necessarily know about where to start looking for a role in their environment. And it may not have been a huge impact, but at least they left with something small and tangible to take away. Something that... Um... My clinical supervisor used to say to me when I first became a therapist was, if you think you're the solution to someone's addiction or mental health concerns, you're already a, a bad therapist. They're like, if you view yourself as a solution rather than them being the solution, uh, solving their own challenges or managing their own challenges, you're in the wrong industry. The idea for a therapist is that we're honored to be able to walk a certain amount of steps with people. And so let's say someone managing or coming to terms with or even being able to, to um, beat their issues is a journey of a thousand steps or a thousand miles. As a therapist, you might walk with someone from mile 30 to mile 332, or you might walk with them from mile you know, 700 to mile 796. And maybe if you're very lucky, you might be the person who gets to walk with them when they finally kind of hit that last space. But you're just part of the client journey and your your job is to say that you help them get further without with very rarely getting the reward of actually seeing them get to that next that next space. Sounds like that's pretty similar. Very similar. Uh, it, and on occasion, you actually do get to see them in a role and get to celebrate uh, with them, which, of course, is incredibly rewarding. And then it's so nice to be able to do the check in and just. How's it going? This may not be exactly what you wanted, but are you learn? Are you at least still learning? Do you feel that there's a future in some way? The reason I'm so interested about this is I know many, many senior level leaders who volunteer. You know, either they're on boards, which I know you and I have talked about. Uh, they'll serve on boards, or they'll do like direct volunteer work, like you're talking about. And the idea of giving back for senior leaders, and not for all of them. It, you know, it's a pretty live conversation. I find it interesting that, that I have never ever, across all of the people I spoke to, and maybe I just didn't ask the right question or they didn't volunteer it, I've never met anyone who volunteers with new immigrants. Well, I think there's quite a few of us. Mm -hmm. And I've encouraged other, a few other friends of mine to, if they're interested, just go and learn a little bit more about it. Yeah. Generally, um, people that I encourage to do it have been immigrants themselves because uh, I think there's a sense of wanting to give back and sharing the experience of that journey. It's giving someone else a hand up. 
if there was any advice that you could give to someone who is either an immigrant, but they've, you know, kind of now settled roots and they've, they've gotten into that space where they can help. So either for someone like that who wants to give back or someone who is like born and raised in, uh, in the country, but they want to help new immigrants, what would you suggest are some like really tangible steps that people could take? Because it, it's just so interesting to me. I'm like, I can't think of anyone else that I know. And as you said, of course, there's many people. Yeah. I can't think of anyone I've had on the podcast who does that. And I'm sure there must be someone, but like, damn, like, yeah, that's super cool. So how can people help? There's the easy one. If you don't have the time, most of these organizations need money for funding. So you can go to Mosaic's website, you can donate. There are other organizations as well. I don't know them as well, so I can't speak to them. Mm -hmm. um, there's volunteer opportunities of many levels. It can be sort of a career fair. It can be showcasing your company at a career fair, which all helps a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's helping get them into the workforce. There are a couple of new sort of, I'd say petitions, but the mosaic in particular i have seen are actively behind it in helping ease the path for professionals coming mm -hmm. in to bc and to canada to recognize their professional designations mm -hmm. so if there's any opportunity that comes up to sort of amplify that message mm -hmm. help in that way we're short of medical people yet we give them such a tough time to come in and requalify yeah. let's make that path easier I love that so much. Um, both my parents uh, were immigrants, and um, my father was a very successful water engineer all over the world. And when he moved to Canada, he came over with a, a French company that he'd been working for. And then the recession in the 80s hit, and he wasn't able to do that anymore because he didn't have the qualifications. But this guy had been like everywhere and been a water engineer. And my dad spoke six languages. Like he wasn't, he didn't have a formal education, but he had like experience, like yes. serious experience. He was never able to do it again. He had to retrain himself uh, to be an accountant and to go and do that work. And for many years, he just kind of did whatever work he could do. And as a kid growing up, I just felt like I just saw this guy who was brilliant. Like you give my dad a problem, boom, he could figure it out. Like anything that had any kind of engineering side of it, he could just figure it out. And I, I don't have that. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do that. But uh it really is a kid like watching my dad go through that and so much of it was he just didn't fit into that little like square that you can fall that you're supposed to be able to fall into and so he grew up in in syria and just poverty didn't they didn't have money for him to go to school these brilliant people who have so much to offer and you know we don't want to minimize jobs like a, no. every job is great but like be, not being able to do their chosen profession because what it means to be qualified in this country you make a really good point about the expectation of fitting into that box because that box is a preconceived sort of notion. I mean, it's required in a that you put requirements out there. But I'd encourage employers to sometimes think beyond that box because experience so often speaks for so much more than book smarts or book learning. I'm sure there's stuff that um, your father did and saw in the field that would have moved stuff along way further than someone that just showed up with the qualifications and the degree. I mean, he was my dad, so I'll say yes. But like also he used to say things like if we were watching like a, um, a house renovation show, he'd be like, oh, yeah, that's that thing is a tool now. But like back in because he had worked in, in Africa and like all over the world, he's like, back, you know, back in Africa and we were working. We essentially just made that thing. It wasn't a tool yet. We just made it because that's what you had to do. And he's like, God, you know, if I had only like, you know, copywritten these things and like created these things, he's like, 
but you know, you just make it and you're on the job and then you go and make some other tool. Again, I am not, I do not have these skills at all, but this, uh, and you know, my dad went on to, to do many great things, including like, you know, raising a family. He was a, um, a homemaker for a long time, you know, an accountant, uh, just brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, and it always did stick with me though, that like, oh, he can't do his chosen profession because of like, he just doesn't have a degree. And, and one of the th things he'd said to me when I was young, because I was like a lazy person, very, very, very lazy, which for anyone who knows me now would maybe be a surprise. But uh, he said to me, get the highest level of education you can, not because it makes you necessarily better at what you're going to do, because that comes from experience. But when you have degrees, they can never take that away from you. He's like, they'll never, ever be able to take a degree away from you if you're within the country where you got the degrees or within North America. He was like, get degrees, arm yourself. He was like, it doesn't make you recession proof, but it makes it really, really challenging for you to like, to not be at least to be able to get a foot in the door. And uh, that's why I aggressively pursued education was because of my dad's experience. Yeah. And it's that foot in the door. Totally. And just the conversation starter or get, get the interview. Totally. But going to what you said is like, experience is the maker like some of the worst therapists i ever met when i was a therapist had the like highest degrees and i was like who let you in the door like this is no good i remember there's this wonderful therapist i worked with uh, named diane who didn't have degrees and and she was like grandfathered in uh, because she'd been a, a therapist for so long best therapist i ever worked with i learned the most from her and it was just someone who in the 60s started working as a helper and then kind of just was grandfathered into being a therapist, like learned the general, the not the general, learned very complex uh, process. And there wasn't really back then that level of um, governance there is now in the therapeutic world. Best therapist I ever worked with didn't have a degree. There's the whole, the whole scale. So I did want to push on something though. You are, and of course I know you're, I can imagine how you're going to react to this. You're a very successful person very successful career-wise. You've done a lot of stuff. You've raised a family. You've done a lot of, you have done a lot of very serious, impactful work. Mm -hmm. Why not just relax, enjoy life, enjoy what you've done, just and continue working? Why the idea of giving back? That's not that complex, actually, for me, or the way I see it. I, I said, I came to this country with privilege. I've had privilege all my life. And it's not a bad thing, but I can use that to help others. I also need to be busy and challenged. And challenge comes in all sorts of different forms. A day job where it's working on business is one challenge. But helping change hearts and minds and I think some of what you're speaking to is the work that I've done in the space of diversity, equity, and inclusion specifically, where I shouldn't be swearing, but I have that little bit of a FU attitude at times when I see things that just aren't just or aren't right. Yeah. And it's harnessing that sort of passion to make a change. Yeah. I would say of most people I know, like especially people I've met in the corporate world, you definitely have that like F you attitude and not in like a toxic, like shitty way, but like in a real like, let's say there's like a system and it's like, well, why is it like that? Well, it's like that just because it's easier for everyone. That's just how it is. Of almost anyone I know, you're like, no, that's not how it's going to be. Let's figure it out. Yeah. Where does that willingness come from, though? I don't know. Like... Going back to something that happened where 
it probably came from just seeing how someone reacted in a situation that was not fair it was horrible again it's the victim and they felt that they couldn't do anything ended up leaving their job resigning part of it was maybe because I didn't realize it at the time until this happened because it would never happen to me I have probably what I call a huge big keep off the grass sign (laughs) where I won't have somebody making unwanted sexual advances of me but it was happening in in a place where I worked and of course it like I said wouldn't happen to me but it wouldn't happen where I could see it either mm-hmm. and that's why I say that that sort of passion came out of it I did how can I fix this how can I change this you can't fix what's gone but I can be more vocal going forward about helping people stand up to that and identify it helping people around that sort of situation identified and correct in the moment so I did um, some work there were a couple of colleagues at the time and we were going through something and sort of how do we approach this in the workplace and that's just not enough of course me put a couple of slides together pulled some resources read a couple of extra books and put on a road trip went across the country with Um, a dear ally and colleague and we spoke about it got up in front of people in boardrooms and actually just spoke about what a safe inclusive workplace is what bullying is what it isn't and we spoke about sexual harassment some of the most terrifying moments standing in front of audiences Mm -hmm. I just felt it needed to be done coming through that process was incredibly rewarding in very many ways because there were people that were asking me questions on um, other topics around how can they help when they see stuff happening and you know it's as often as sometimes saying is everything okay here if you witness something or we don't do that here if just a couple of little words can break a cycle completely okay i'm gonna push hard on this one yeah and we'll leave the company out of it we'll leave names out of it um i remember very much sitting in a boardroom with Mm -hmm. you with a bunch of other people confronting a very very serious situation and your absolute integrity and complete refusal to sweep this under the rug and watching you manage that in a very very professional way but also it's like clear like no, we're not going to sweep this under the rug. We are going to deal with this. We're going to find the solution. And being involved in an extremely challenging, multi-hour conversation. And it was really, you and I had known each other before that, but it was, it was a, a different stage in our relationship when I, I was really like super impressed by how you and, and other people who were so wonderful, again, who will remain unnamed right now. From there, you went on to really become a strong advocate and you continue today but some wild stuff had been going on around you and it hadn't touched your world and when you became aware of it instead of just being like oh that really sucks sorry that happened you decided to lean in was there a cost involved where I said today absolutely not at the time I feared for my job 
not because I thought anybody would fire me over it, but you never know at the time, you know, what's, what, how other people are going to react, how that will affect your day-to-day working relationships with people, because I took a stand, I was very public about it. Um, perception could have been anything, everything. It, I was working in a company, you know, that they have power whichever way that they could say to you, sorry, you're out. And if that had been the case, where would I have found the next opportunity? There's so much fear at that point. But the motivation to push through and just do the right thing really powered me through it. And then as you start the conversation and finding allies in all sorts of places, um, in places where I never would have expected to find allies or, or people just saying, I've felt helpless about this too, historically. Thank you for opening the conversation. Thank you for standing up and then being a leader. I'm there with you now. So watching... Uh, from the sidelines and, and at times being able to, to partner with you as you as you went through this was uh, really I mean it was amazing amazing to to just see the whole thing unfold even at a super senior level that you're at and you know a huge track record of success behind you like lots of regard in the industry like really someone who can like pop into another job if they need to it was still scary it was still hard and you had to make a decision to be like, okay, this isn't on my lawn, but I'm, I'm actually going to get involved now. So if we extrapolate that from a senior level leader who's got years of experience and we take it down to like uh, someone who's in their first or second job who doesn't have this super long track record, maybe a few years out of university or maybe new to the country or um, someone who's reentered the workforce. That idea of like, let's be inclusive, you know, and like it's of course, it's like I fully believe people want this. But I also think it's like when you're in that situation, you see that sexist joke or you hear that sexist joke or that person hits on you and you don't know what to do. Or there's the whisper network. Someone says that like, hey, not to be racist, but from senior level people like me as a company owner, I could just like fire someone like you get out of here. You you know, I've got no consequences. And you even at your level, you were you had a lot of fear. What can we say for people who are in these, these early roles or roles where they're feeling even more vulnerable or more reticent to take a stand? Learn a couple of phrases, practice them. Mm-hmm. Because if you end up in that situation, and it can be at a company function, I mean, that's generally when it's going to happen more, when people are more casual around things. Um, and it can be just, I'm not okay with that. It's tough to do, which is why I say practice it. It's also so easy to say practice it if people around you aren't sort of of the same mindset. Encourage senior leadership to be open about talking about inclusiveness in the workplace. Somewhere there will be somebody in most organizations, I won't say all, that will help fly the banner. They may just not know how or how to start the conversation. Very often, it's that fear of starting a conversation and saying something wrong that prevents people from just even saying sexual harassment in the workplace. Saying words like that can be very um, challenging for many people. To go even further, though, because I... 
I think about this quite often and, and I'm confronted with it in the work that I do is also the more that this conversation is kind of pushed and discussed and kind of opened up, there seems to be a default position. Uh, I don't want to say with every company or every organization or every person. It's like, oh, yes, yes, this is super important. Oh, this is bullshit. Like, I'm just going to wait till the, well, you know, everyone knows what I really meant. There seems to be this kind of like learned, um, performative, like great work, let's do that. And then the background is just like, let's just wait till this, is, this trend is over and we just get back to whatever. Like, I think that's a real thing. And, you know, um, studies are, are showing now, like in the workspace, that um, the perception from like the workspace of, of the effectiveness of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion programs is uh, not slowing, it's that companies are investing in them less. Like the work, the work in and of itself is effective, but companies seem to have kind of like lost their taste for a little bit. So what do we do here? We're in this space where people just kind of know how to like, just be performative about their agreement. And then companies are also kind of losing their taste for it. Like this is like pretty, not pretty, it's very important work. And it feels like almost like the moment is a little less, um, a little less energy behind it. So yeah. what do we do here? Well, one of the things that I am doing is I'm on the Diversity Leadership Council of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. Mm -hmm. A group of like-minded people that want to see the dial moving ahead. Actually, this year we had um, more people applying to the council than, I can't say previous years, but we did get lots of applicants. So I find that very heartening, that people are still interested. Yeah, yeah. There were a number of us that said, please keep us on because we want to see the, see through another year or, or two years so we can make a difference. We're trying to move the needle in that we include it in other events as well. So that is not just events that the, leader, the Diversity Leadership Council does, but bringing in stories to what I call unconverted audiences. Mm -hmm. Maybe they know a little bit about it. They don't truly understand it or they... They sort of do, but that performative, let's bring it into something where everyone feels they can take actions, even if they're small. Yeah. It doesn't have to take a lot of money. It doesn't have to take huge amounts of energy. It's just changing a couple of words here and there and just being more deliberate about being inclusive. So changing our behavior. It might be something as simple as sitting around um, a boardroom table and I'm generally soft-spoken, the person that'll sit back at the, listen to the whole conversation and then say my piece at the end. Mm -hmm. And I remember very clearly one day a, a true ally and somebody that I looked up to made sure that I had that space created because they knew that I would have something important to say in that space but also recognize the fact that I was probably quite intimidated in that forum. So those are some of the, I say small actions, but they're huge, huge actions. How do we keep the, um, I don't wanna say the pressure up, but how do we keep the energy up on this? Uh, Cause like, I, I can almost just feel like, you know, it's like a balloon, like losing, losing its air uh, a little bit. And at first it was like slow, just, but now I feel like funding is like starting to push, like, you know, organizations are like, yeah, we'll put funding in there, but less because, you know, dur especially during the height of the pandemic and the energy that was given uh, to this through Me Too and then 
Black Lives Matter and lots of focus on diversity and then also like uh, focus on trans activism and LGBTQ plus activism. There's been a lot of energy, but it feels like the air is coming out of the balloon a little slowly, but now it seems like it's, it's coming a little bit more. It's not that I think like everyone needs to be talking about it all the time and be in everyone's face. And, and in fact, that's what I think people are afraid of. Yeah. Um, but more so, it's like, how do we just make this like a, a consistent, normal push that companies can uh, confidently invest in? Because it is an investment. Like I always go back to the when people are saying, we hire the best and brightest. Well, no, not if you hire from like this amount of the population. Correct. You're getting the best and brightest from this little group of people. How do we actually get the best and brightest? So how do we keep the energy up on this, the momentum up on this? Because I do feel it's slowing. And I don't want to be a naysayer. And please, if I'm wrong, I hope I'm wrong. But it feels like the energy's, the energy's going out of it. Oh, I certainly agree. And in some places, I see the energy tapping a little bit. Maybe the conversation was amplified too much for a while. I, don't, I can't even say too much. But maybe some people felt that way. I, I think you hit on it. I think some people felt that way. And especially during the pandemic, it's like, you know, we're kind of all locked in our houses. Everything felt extra. Like everything was extra. Like, I don't think it was being talked about too much, but I think it was being perceived as being talked about too much. Yeah. There was a time when I think everybody just felt it was only talking about inclusion and diversity. We need to embed it in our processes. I mean, for sure. The business case is still strong and 2023 I'm sitting saying we still need to write business cases for certain people about equity, diversity and inclusion. In my mind, that business case is done, dusted and <laughs> long ago. It's like climate change. If you read everything and some of the studies, by doing it and investing in um, diversity of thought, minds and broadening our talent pool, we will move further so much more and be more successful financially that's how most people measure success is financially in business but also you'll reach your client base much better clients are asking for it so totally. from a business perspective on the procurement side make sure you ask those questions in the rfp yeah. in things like our truth and reconciliation commitments in canada some of the calls to action few questions when you start engaging in the business are they indigenously led as a business maybe you'd want to work with them more or at least if you don't know you can't support an area or another area more than just going through the ropes i'm just going to get catering for everybody there's so many places where you can also support small businesses minority-led businesses just get that step up. Yeah, I, I I fully agree. I think if like, listen, if you have any level of success or your business is doing well, you have to, and not not just like, oh, we should do it, like corporate social responsibility, but it's like, no, you got to get in the game here because like, I, I don't want to like go in on the government and make all sorts of things, but I'll just say like, you know, where we live right now, uh, live in Strathcona in Vancouver, um, within eight blocks here, there is, Massive, serious addiction, mental health, homelessness concerns. A big part of that population is um, from a uh, non-Caucasian background. 
And I just feel like you got to get in the game. You got to. You can't wait for the government to fix it. Again, I'm not making a commentary on the government or, or, or whatever. It's more so that like if you don't get in the game and you just wait for everyone else to do it, then it's never going to get done. And some I can see the counter arguments like, well, why would we? Like we have all these government programs. Well, I'm not asking people to like go rogue and like <laughs> just start like throwing money at people. But there are like this this mosaic organization you're talking about. It's like I've heard the name, and like now that you've talked about, it, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I am. I am slightly aware of it. But it's like, oh, like actually, let's learn more about that. Like just go out and do some research. Ask questions. Like don't be afraid to ask questions. Like the only thing you're gonna get is like a good answer, or go on Google, whatever it is. But like. Stepping into the breach here, if you have any level of success, it is your damn responsibility to do it. Most of the focus that I've had, I've sat on a couple boards, um, which were definitely super cool, uh, cool experiences. But most of the stuff that I am involved in right now is more like animal welfare stuff, um, which is something I know is near and dear to your heart as well. All right, environmentalism. Yep. Tell us about it. Well, I won't call myself a huge, I mean, I am, but I, in terms of action, of things that I can do on the diversity, equity, inclusion scale and environmentalism, I'm like down here as an absolute beginner. Incredibly proud of my um, daughter who embraces it way more than I do, um, who actually labeled the cheese, I'm vegetarian, we're vegetarian, but actually went to the cheese drawer in the fridge and wrote on it, Ada Pus. Oh, <laughs> respect as well though. <laughs> yeah. Not wrong. <laughs> Not wrong. Monica's behind you. She's like puffing her fist in the air. Yeah, she um, lifts me up in so many ways and reminds me of the little things that we can all do. Yeah. So I went and Googled it as well. Being vegetarian is still way better than a meat eater. And um, only, well, I can't remember the percentage now, but we're close to complete vegans mm. in our impact says BBC. Respect. Respect. <laughs> Little rules that I've given myself and I try and encourage other people to do. I will not buy myself a Starbucks or anything like that, whether it be a blends or a way, unless I have my travel mug. Just a small change in my life, right? Yeah. Um, very proud that we got a gold star on our recycling bin. <laughs> it's little changes all of us can make, as well as encourage and amplify the good work that other people are doing. But why do you care? You why are involved in so much stuff. You volunteer in multiple organizations. You've taken on serious, serious battles at work to make a difference. And you really, as part of your career, and, and continued now, but part of your career, you like took on a real challenge that was going on in an organization and really threw yourself into it at risk to your own career and made big inroads at that organization. Why do you care? Like, why are you doing all the, why are you doing all this stuff? Like, why are you even thinking about like, you know, like if someone might say like, just, why aren't you just relaxing and enjoying, enjoying life? Why do you care so much? I've got lots of time to relax and enjoy life as well. <laughs> it just feels right. Yeah. And wouldn't it be nicer if we can get along as humanity, we live, um, a planet that we all enjoy today for our children and their children. Like one of the things I appreciate every morning is when I walk the dogs is the fresh air 
and the serenity in nature, why would I want to destroy that? I want to preserve that. Mm. When we've been on safari and you sit in a sort of open vehicle and the elephants are as far as you are from me now, why would I not want to make sure that that's there for millennia to come? The thing that stands out to me is the power to do it. So when I talk about veganism or vegetarianism, you know, for example, when I go to do a, a course at a company mm-hmm. and there's always a little like, oh, is the food okay? And, and I really appreciate this from our clients, but there's a lot of like, oh my gosh, we want to make sure we get it right. And I'm pretty easygoing. Like I'll, I'll only eat vegan things, but like, you know, like, it's no big deal if by mistake you put like some mayonnaise on something. I just won't eat that thing. I'll eat yeah. the things around it, right? But um, the thing that I was trying to get across to people is like, hey, just just relax. Like it is totally fine. Like do what you can when you can do it. Like that's the easiest starting point. And, uh, you know, I say to people when they're thinking about being vegan, it's like, why don't you just try being vegetarian at first? And in yeah. fact, just try reducing your meat in general. See how that goes. And then try being vegetarian, then try being vegan. And you're not trying to be like, you know, like uh, this isn't like the vegan marathon. Like it's not about who wins. Like I know people who've popped in and out of it, gone vegetarian, gone back, myself included. Like when I was younger, I was uh, vegan in the, uh, in the 90s. I was a <laughs> vegan straight edge guy um, and went back to being vegetarian, went back to eating meat. But now I've been back to being vegan for like, I don't know, like 12 to 15 years, something like that. But the idea is just do what you can and some people just don't have the financial ability to do it totally understandable some people don't have they have health concerns um i've got a really really good friend who developed a um was vegan for a long time developed like an allergy to legumes and actually had to stop being vegan it was crazy anyways do what you can is the easiest thing but the other thing and it is standing out to me so much in what you're saying is is like we have immense power just the average person has crazy amounts of power i could simply just be like I don't want to eat, like, let's say I was a meat eater. I could just be like, yeah, I don't, I just don't feel like chicken today. Literally something is not going to die just because you did that. Like something is not going to die. Or I could just be like, I don't want to have milk or I don't want to eat beef today. Like imagine the power of just deciding to not do that more often because we live in a world that's so complex and it feels like it's so out of our control. Very simple choices we can make each day help reduce suffering. And if I was to go to a person and say, should we reduce or increase suffering in this planet? Except I'll for say reduce. Well, so there'll be some weirdos like I'd be like, increase suffering. <laughs> but like, outside of them, most people are going to be like, we should reduce suffering. Human beings have crazy amounts of power to do that just by being like, I am going to decide where I shop and where I spend my money a little bit, or I'm going to reduce meat eating or not eat meat, or I'm going to drive less. Like there are these really simple things that we could do where you can also still totally enjoy life. You don't have to live this totally restricted way. Monica and I, and and Mike, who uh, is the podcast engineer, we travel all over the place. And like, I think we eat like total animals everywhere. Like we have the best vegan food. You can reduce suffering massively if you just put a little bit of research into it. Yep. You might also just, you spoke about shopping. Shop at the store where you know um, there isn't child labor being employed because they haven't made the headlines 
or maybe it's 50% more, but it's going to last you 10 years. This whole sort of one season fashion stuff drives me a little bit crazy. I mean, not only do you buy it and it falls apart and then you're throwing it in the bin, but you don't get to enjoy it for long. So, I mean, just spend a little bit of extra money, buy the good pair of um, shoes. And yes, they can be leather shoes. I know lots of people won't agree. We can't all be perfect all the time. Like I said, my travel mug goes with me wherever now. It's how many less paper cups that I've just put into the environment for no real reason. Um, speaking of the clothing piece, I got to give a shout out to Monica um, because Monica dresses almost exclusively vintage, which is like all, you know, it's the idea of like recycling, recycling clothing. Yeah. And her clothing is dope. She dresses so cool and isn't just like throwing out a bunch of stuff or going through like that kind of fast fashion, like, you know, like every season changing it up. Uh, our, clo our closet is also like bursting <laughs> with like super cool vintage stuff. But like, it's the coolest to watch that idea of stuff that was made handmade like 40 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 60 years ago, finding like a second life or a third life or a fourth life. Like that's little stuff you can do, but you can also have fun with it and it's super cool. Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want really cool vintage stuff that's way more elaborate than my black and white today? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's just so much stuff and I keep hearing that through, like when I, why I keep asking is like, why do you care, why do you care? It's like being successful and being good at something gives you a lot more latitude to give back Absolutely. and to be in the game. But also most people, I don't want to say most people because I'm, I'm not most people, but I'd say a lot of people have an ability to do just little things day to day that just reduces suffering. It is such a tangible thing for people. Yeah, and as you said, who wouldn't want to reduce suffering? Except some weirdo who's going to want to increase it. I don't want to, I don't want to know that person. Um, let's go into... Um, uh, the COO role, yep. so chief operating officer. If I go from company to company to company and I say, what is that? I will get a different answer almost every single time. So if you could give us just in general what your interpretation of what a COO is. My interpretation is it comes from my lived experience, but also from what I, um, colleagues that I work with with similar titles. Many people will say it's the two I see to the CEO. Yes, but it's a lot more than that as well. It's the buck actually stops very often with the CEO on a whole bunch of things. It's having your fingers in multiple pots and lots of projects, which is something that I, said, I, might, I, I need the challenge and to be entertained. So that works for me. It's got great variety. So in my current role, I look after things like the strategic planning, the finances, the technology, something I'm very passionate about in other ways because we can help use technology to move us forward in um, climate action, human resources, marketing. It's, there's already a huge variety of activities there. In my previous role, it was very similar as well as sort of all the supporting functions, it's of the operation. So it's that looking after the engine, I'd say, of the business. Mm. Um, rewarding in many ways, but also challenging. You and I have been speaking about what it's like being a change agent. I mean, it's right there on my LinkedIn profile. I say, I'm a change agent. 
it goes back to a little bit of that if I see something that's not efficient or right, how can we improve this? How can we make this better? Sometimes it's a little tweaks and changes. Other times it's much more you know, bigger projects, biggest rise, bigger change, which comes with a whole other set of challenges. So that's not really a 22 answer. <laughs> That's <laughs> a one paragraph. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was great. Um, going to being a change agent, though, do you mind if I share some of my thinking on that? Absolutely, go for it. Um, so roles like a COO, especially if a COO has been brought in to do something, like to help a business kind of switch direction or revive itself, or it's doing great, but they actually want to like supercharge growth or whatever. Whenever I see someone who's brought in to, to do something that's based in change, one of the things that I see go, gone after right away is credibility. So when I think of leadership, and anyone who's listened to the podcast has heard me say this before, I think of leadership, it's credibility, content, connection. So credibility gets you a seat at the table, and it makes people willing to listen to you. Content is everything you know. It's all of your expertise, your education, your experience, everything, everything you know from just being a person on the planet. And it's your ability to share that clearly and effectively. Connection is your way of using your verbal and physical presence to support what you're saying, but it's also your empathy and how you build relationships. Um, if I think of those three, those three things, content is the most important. Being able to share all of your wisdom and knowledge and expertise clearly and concisely, making it accessible. And then, your connection, your physical and verbal presence supporting what you're saying, and your ability to build relationships. Credibility is the one that is, I believe is important to have, but if you're a change maker, get ready to see credibility go 100%. Credibility gets attacked when people are trying to make change because people hate change. And organizations can literally hire positions that are about change. Oh, we need to change this thing, let's hire this person. And an organization could really actually want, like want to change, yeah. but then that change activity starts happening. They're like, this is horrible. I don't want this. And what happens is if someone's got good content and someone's got good connection, the only thing they can go after is credibility. Credibility is wavery for most people. And what I mean by that is there's surface level credibility that's based on title and, and uh, how you're introduced to people. But then there's deeper credibility that's based on consistency and you know length of service, like having lots of good results. But both are completely subjective and can be taken away in a heartbeat. If one person who's got a lot of influence is pissed off or two people or three people, or like a CEO or a CEO or someone who's like kind of nasty off in the corner, the credibility of a change maker is going to get attacked. It's like a swarm of, of wasps going after that. And I just encourage anyone who's in a position of change, don't do the battle of credibility because credibility comes and goes. If you have strong content and strong connection, your credibility will come back. But whenever you're in the early to mid stages of creating change, that credibility is going to be assassinated. It is gonna, people are gonna go after it tooth and nail because they're trying to take their hands off a stove that they perceive as hot. And so the only thing they can do is attack your credibility. Yep, been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I've got a thick skin. Well, that's it. And resilience and definitely other ways in life to cope through those times.
Okay. But resilience, like yes. thick skin and resilience. Talk about those because like being a COO, you've got your hands all over lots of different things. And if the business is humming along, operations are great, everything's great, awesome. But if you, let's say you're trying to help an organization change, or if there's a part of an organization change, or you want to kind of supercharge growth, you better be ready for people to come for that credibility. So let's talk about them separately. There's thick skin and then resiliency. So what does thick skin mean for you? And like, how have you built that up? I don't take it to heart. Um, the attacks on credibility can be very direct. They can be very indirect and nuanced. Sometimes they'll go into what I'll just call analysis mode for a bit, like driving to an end goal. Like I'll have a strategic direction with a goal in mind or a vision for something. Things can happen on the way. I may have to course correct. And if I had to take everything at face value, that attack comes, I could very easily lose sight of that end goal. That's sort of the thick skin is, it's almost like brushing it off in some way, but with a sense of analysis as well. There may be something as to why they're saying that. So not just completely brush it off. Hear it, maybe do a little bit of investigation, not maybe, do a little bit, or ponder it, because that might help inform how I approach it or the tactics that I need to employ. So if I think of thick skin, something that can be said about change makers is they're um, too direct or their elbows are too sharp or they're being bullies, you know, like they're, or they're not thinking of their, their the concerns of their, like, you know, the, the deep held concerns of their audience. And most change makers I know actually totally consider all those things and are actually very thoughtful and trying to help. But again, it's like, most people say they're okay with change, but when change comes, people are like, this is horrible, get me out of this. How do you handle things like that? So like, you know, feedback like, oh, someone's elbows are too sharp or they're too direct or they're, I feel like they're not taking, like really thinking about me. Like that's like some real thick skin stuff. Like how do you digest stuff like that and move with it? Maybe the what's in it for me or the what's in it for them, I haven't articulated well enough. And that's where it's that maybe that sort of analysis mode of how differently should we say that, or maybe I haven't actually found the right lever yet. Maybe I'll never find the right what's in it for somebody. But there are opportunities to bring what I call the movable middle or the middle group, you know, people that aren't quite sure that can see the path along with you and then they help create the change also strong believer in celebrating all the small successes and it can be anything from just stating it in a meeting like this week we succeeded at an email migration without taking the whole firm down as an example like that's a huge moment of pride and success that creates energy for me and for those around me to keep driving forward. But there's also, cause you'd said it earlier, like there is some like holding the mirror up. Someone's like, oh, your elbows are too sharp or you're too direct or whatever. There is also a little like, oh, am I like that? Of course. <laughs> How do you deal with that kind of like midnight of the soul kind of conversation? I, you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is, that is true. That is true. But like, what's your process when someone's, when you've gotten feedback back like that, that's 
incorrect, but you don't want to, or you don't think it's right, but you don't want to brush it off, or it is correct and you actually have to adjust. Like there's kind of two poles there. What? How do you handle either one? I usually need to talk it through, depending on how extreme it is, um, talk it through with somebody. I have what I'll call my board of directors of people that I can uh, reach out to that may not even be aware of the situation can have a completely objective approach to it. And maybe one or two of them get called on more frequently than others. And they can sometimes say to me, hey, maybe your elbows were too sharp. And I, I joked, I, I called you, but you know, very often that's a conversation where you help as well in that coaching situation. Mm -hmm. Me reflect on the situation and talk through it. Helps me find a path through. And sometimes it's, well, just keep doing what you're doing because there doesn't seem to be another path. So the, the thick skin is like not taking it too, per like yep. taking it seriously, but not taking it personal, which is a real skill for people to learn. What about resiliency? So how is that different for you? That's creating space for me mm. to do the things that give me energy. The volunteering, the quiet walk in the morning, taking up tennis last year, even though it took a friend of mine a little while to get me there, it's probably been one of the best things. It's the practice of learning something new. And that's why I said creating that space for myself in that balance of things in life. Do you mind if I add to that? So when I think of tone setting, the way I describe it to people, it's setting the psychological conditions to have a productive conversation. It doesn't mean a good conversation. It doesn't mean a nice conversation. It's that you set the psychological conditions so that you can have the most productive conversation based on either how easy the discussion is going to be or how challenging it's going to be. There's three conditions. There's the internal environment, there's the external environment, and then there's the content of what you're actually going to say. So if I think of the internal environment, I'm thinking of uh, your self-care practices like yeah. you're talking about. And I'm also thinking, how do you manage your sympathetic nervous system? Uh, if I think of the external environment, I'm thinking of your physical and verbal presence. But I'm also thinking about how the room is set up and like, where do you sit? And like, you know, all, all of those yeah. things. If you're on a screen, like how do you frame yourself in, in the camera? And the content of what you're saying and how you manage that conversation, it's like, are you being clear? Are you being concise? Are you answering questions effectively? Are you asking questions well? If you think of those three conditions, you can set the tone of a conversation and invite the other person to co-create tone. But going to that internal, um, the uh, internal environment, if you don't put in work for self-care, you can't have, it's very difficult to have productive conversations because your energy reserves are low and it's like a juggler trying to, to juggle a bunch of things at once, but your, one of your hands is tied behind your back, which some jugglers are very good at. But in this analogy, they are not that good at. <laughs> Well, and when you get to that tougher conversation, it's it take the two deep breaths, three deep, however many you need to sometimes just bring yourself back into that moment. Because if you are juggling five other conversations, that conversation is going to suffer. You're not going to be authentic in it. Yeah, that the like doing breathing exercises beforehand, totally. Sympathetic nervous system managing your internal environment. Managing your internal environment from so tone setting is such a vague term usually, and like I, I like things to be practical. Tone setting, take care of what's going on in here, in here and in here. 
make sure the physical environment and how you're showing up is effective. And then just know how you want to have the discussion and try and encourage the other person to bring their best selves into the conversation. Good conversations are challenging ones. From a tone setting perspective, it, it's pretty practical to figure out how to do it, but without self-care, you can't be in that. And I think resiliency, I think most people are actually very resilient. It's that poor self-care has either been taught to people uh, because of the crazy way that we do work in North America and like the lack of self-care that's involved in that. And that's not people's fault. It's just that like the pace of life here is just so insane and there's not a lot of focus on self-care. So either people have been kind of trained up to be poor at self-care or they've just never learned some of the basic foundations of self-care. You know, as an example, I grew up in a family that wasn't really a, an exercise family. Like we didn't go on like hikes or whatever. Like I played soccer as a kid and basketball, yeah. but like no one in my family really taught us about like the importance of like physical health and physical activity. This is not a commentary about body size or anything, just like the importance of that about your mental health. I don't think that was a conversation, but like no one in my family was like a runner or anything like that. And at one point I was in my twenties, I'm like, oh, I feel like shit. And my friend of mine was like, why don't you get in shape? And I was like, oh. oh no, what a novel idea. Yeah, totally, totally. Well, I'd say I was fortunate to grow up in a family where it wasn't spoken about all the time. But um, my father rode horses, so we rode horses. And my mom was a yoga teacher, so there was always an awareness of stuff. My parents are both um, black belt in karate. I never got past yellow belt. Mm -hmm. We have a visitor. Talk about self-care. This is a master of self-care. What did you say about a yellow belt? I said I never got past a yellow belt. That's pretty good. Oh, it's the second belt. Maybe that's where some of the FU came from. Uh, there was a sensei, a junior instructor, and we were sparring one day, and he put his hand on my head. <laughs> and of course, I had much shorter arms, and there was nothing I could do. Yeah, yeah. So maybe, yeah, maybe that's where some of that came from. Listen, if we just, uh, by a show of hands, who here has who here has a yellow belt in anything? Show of hands. Just you. Mike's put his hand up. Mike doesn't have a, Mike has a white belt because he's a he's a fancy musician. Get out! You oh, do not have. Do you really? Yeah, might have been three. I don't recall all of them. I have greatly under <laughs> underestimated the the power of that question. I really put myself in a pickle there. Good for you, man. I mean, our our five year old has a um, a white belt with two stripes now. Uh, she's in jujitsu. She's been in it since she was four. Cool. It's but that idea of like resilience. You, Resilience, I think people actually naturally are very, very resilient, but the pace of North America has taken people away from that center and they probably, a lot of people just need to learn a discipline around that. And I don't just mean like a workout discipline, but resilience is a thing that, again, I think it's a natural ability most people have. We just need to be, learn how to tap into it, maintain it and keep it up because that way you can take on some of these challenges that we're talking about. As we're kind of tucking in towards the, the tail end of the conversation, I wanted to pop back to empathy. Yeah. Um, empathy is like one of my favorite conversations because like when people talk about empathy, they're super like, oh, I just, it's so important that leaders are empathetic. And then you kind of, it's kind of like that word strategy. Yeah. Like you get the sense if I was to ask someone, well, what do you mean by empathy? They'd be able to answer one question, maybe a second. But if I got to a third question, they'd be like, 
get me out of this discussion. I might be feeling that way soon. <laughs> Do you mind if I explain the way that I think about yeah. empathy? Empathy is just understanding other people. And how do we understand anything? If I want to understand how to fix a car, I just read card manuals, I watch some YouTube videos, I study, I learn about it. It's the same with people. Human beings are constantly gathering information about everyone around them at all times. If someone's just off to my periphery, a part of my mind is judging how far away they are from me. We're kind of guessing like, how does that person look right now? Are they a threat? Are they relaxed? What are they physically capable of? We're constantly gathering information. And if you think of like a walk-in closet in a house, if you have a really developed um, ability around empathy, that means that that walk-in closet has racks and shelves and places to hang things. But if you don't have a really developed sense of empathy, it just means that you still have the walk-in closet, but you're just taking clothing and you're just throwing it into the closet. And you've got these huge piles of clothing. And when you want to put on an outfit, you have to dig through the clothing and the clothing's all like wrinkly and musty and you're trying to put together this outfit. People actually by nature are incredibly good at gathering information. It's one of the best things human beings do. They're constantly gathering information about people. But if you don't have a way of organizing it, then you're not strong at empathy. And the way that I encourage people to think about it, to get all of that thing, the shelves up in a closet so that you can like put all the clothing together is, um, kind of if you create like a four quadrant grid and if you're trying to think about people I always say think of um, personal and professional that'd be like top left of the grid but I don't mean like how many kids people have or anything like that it's like well, what do you actually know about people so for example um, has someone ever had to move to a new city and completely reestablish themselves if yes like well what was that like for them? Like, what were the challenges? Like, you know, like when did they find their groove? How did they do that? How did they develop a group of friends? Like, what did they find different about that city? Like really try and understand someone's experiences because it tells you a lot about them. I want to know all sorts of stuff about people's families, you know, like, I, and, and like it, it, it just tells you so much about them beyond the basics. But beyond personal and professional, I always think of challenges and challenging. And what I mean by challenges is like, what are the challenges in their world? What are the difficult things that they've got going on, both personally and professionally? But I also think of like, um, what's challenging about them? So I was doing this exercise with my team one time and I just said, you know, for example, like what's challenging about me and our head of marketing, Tammy, it was as if she'd been sitting on this like thing for like a hundred years. She was like, I'll tell you what's challenging about you. And she basically was like, you love ideas, but you hate process. And as soon as like, you love talking about ideas, but as soon as we get to a process space, you like are out of there as quick as you possibly can be and holding you down and making you really be a part of process is so important to the company. But like, because you're, you speak to people all day, you're really crafty and tricky and you're like, you're yeah. good at getting out of conversation. She's like, that's what's challenging about you. So you want to know what's challenging for people or what challenges they have, what's challenging for them. But also you want to know who their influences are. So who are their mentors? Have they ever been coached? What authors do they read? I like to know what like movies and TVs, uh, TV shows people like, like, are they a person uh, who's a person of faith? Or are they not a person of faith? Like what influences their thinking? Uh, most people have what I call cultural icons. Like, you know, it's people that, and they don't have to be like superstars. They don't have to be like Lady Gaga. It could be, but a cultural icon would be someone who's played some kind of role in our culture, whether it's business culture or just like community culture. And um, what did they draw from that person?
And then the last thing is hobbies, interests, and passions. And I want to understand those. And I view those three things as different. If you use this grid, this is what I call empathy mapping. And it might sound a little like the private investigator, a little creepy. No, it's just simply, if you're asking effective questions, these are the, these are like the, the shelves and things that you would be putting, putting that clothing on. You need to have a framework of like what kind of questions you ask, why you ask them, where you're going with the information, what does that tell you about someone? If you have a system, empathy is simply data gathering. And from that data gathering, you can create a predictive model. That's the way I look at empathy. I'm just busy thinking of all the questions I ask during sort of the first mentorship engagement when we're sort of setting the tone or where we want to go when I'm working with um, a new mentee. Mm-hmm. I may not hit all of those quadrants because generally it's some logistics and all of this, this is all confidential unless you give me permission to share it kind of conversation um, as well. But a lot of it is just getting to know a little bit more about their journey. What brought them here? What are they looking for? What can I help them with immediately? There's so much telling that even just that question, what can I do for you today? Yeah. Or what would you like to talk about today? Totally, totally. The value of asking questions, but also knowing where that information goes in your head, like just having like shelves and that empathy thing. A predictive model for people means you know where you can kind of guess where they're going to go and things, but you also know how you can help them most. What are their blind spots? Like what do they lean to? What are their strengths? What are their challenges? Like a lot of this is what I, I built up just from being a therapist or a coach, but I encourage people like really have like five or 10 questions in each of those quadrants you ask people in a, in a non-creepy and invasive way. So you can build up your empathy skill very, very well because the more empathy you have, the more you can understand why people feel and act certain ways and you can create that middle ground between them. Well, going back to the what's in it for me, mm. it helps you articulate that better, mm. which is a, a challenge for me when we get into the empathy realm is when somebody is just that one or two word answers just can't quite crack through it. Yeah, they're doing like the they're doing the hyper answer pyramid. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Too much. <laughs> All right, let's get into these last little bits. So before we get into the final three, you know, the crucial three tough questions at the end. Anything you want to shout out? Anyone you want to mention? Anything you want to to hit on? Well, there's so many people. Um, I'm going to do a blanket. There are a number of people and dear colleagues that I worked with over the last years. Even I'm thinking of my my first friend in Canada was somebody I met through work. So I'm not going to list everybody today. Um, thank you to you, Aram and Cadence, and for all the great work you do. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And everybody keep doing what you're you're doing because... We're all in it to make us a much better world to live in. I hope so, except for those people that want to increase suffering. They're, yeah, they're, well, they're, they're not, not on my list. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there is, I may have to revisit. <laughs> all right, let's get these last three questions. Okay, so before, when we were just chatting before the show, you know the questions, by the way. For those who don't know, the uninitiated ask three questions. They get harder from question to question to question. They're not always business questions. Sometimes they're music questions, but I'm going to, I'm going to go a different route with you today. So born and raised in South Africa, correct? What are three South African dishes that you just cannot find here, 
but to you they're like oh, that's just like that's the food there i you had to pick out a really <laughs> different a difficult one okay a halloumi salad hmm. you may actually get it here but it's not on a menu most people probably have no idea what that is what is it do you know uh, halloumi cheese it's a grilled cheese you can get it in some grocery store and just on a salad mm, okay. okay simple cheese salad yeah, I, vegetarian not vegan but it I sounds it sounds delectable yeah. all right i'm gonna say pizza but you can get pizza everywhere here but like just a really good thin crust high quality pizza you can get almost everywhere in south africa in south africa big pizza place huh not really it's just they're better at doing it okay i am very interested <laughs> in this okay lots of other parts of the world okay and then I'll just say generally fresh fruit and vegetables. Hmm. The, the quality, weird fact, at a hey, stage man. in my life, I used to walk to the grocery store at lunchtime and bag, buy a bag of washed lettuce. Okay. That was lunch because that's how good the lettuce is. Really? Yes. Wow. Maybe followed by a chocolate brownie afterwards, but oh, you just couldn't leave it alone. <laughs> That's a really bad idea. <laughs> I hope, I hope, I hope you'll let us be friends. <laughs> I feel like I can't get ahead. All right, all right, all right, all right. Okay, good, 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 good. That's a good one. All right, second, why German shepherds? My grandparents had German Shepherds, so I kind of knew the German Shepherds. We had Dobermans growing up, which I also quite liked Dobermans. And then uh, when we finally decided on a dog, there was a long debate. Uh, German Shepherd, Doberman, the German Shepherds one. So now I'm kind of addicted because they are incredibly loyal. Mm -hmm. The huge furballs. Like, if I had really thought this through, I, I would have fought harder for the dogmans with the short hair. Mm -hmm. Our standard poodle, however, so you see the trend, all smart dogs in the top sort of rank. Yeah, but hairy dogs. Yeah. She doesn't shed. Oh, really? But you've got to groom her all the time and, of course, shave all of that hair. Mm. All right, ready for your last, last big challenge. Yeah. You have had a storied career and you have done lots of cool stuff. And also like just really with a lot of courage faced a lot of big, big challenges. What's something that you have yet to achieve that you want to achieve before you say, okay, I'm, I'm done? So you've asked me this question before. So it, it still is a tough question. I'd like to see um, more equity in every workplace. And it's been a battle and a fight for so many years that I'm not sure that I'll actually see that in my career. But if I've made just a little bit of a difference for everybody that isn't heard or understood and helping change that, then it's a success. Out of all the questions, the uh, food one was the toughest. Toughest, yes. <laughs> All right. I'm a boring menu person. What can I say? I don't think that's true. You love spicy food. I do. That's not boring. Um, all right. As we're closing off, any last words at all? This has been a heck of a lot of fun. I love your podcasts. 
I'm probably going to listen to them more now that I've actually experienced it. Please keep doing it. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for everything that you've done and for being such a great friend and partner over the years. And I'm excited for what comes next. Thank you. All right, everyone. Uh, so, you know, keep up the fight. If you believe in anything and you really want to see change, no, you're not the solution, but you're part of it. Even if it's those few steps, that little bit of impact that you make, it's worth it. And if you're afraid, find allies, find people who support you. I'm not saying in every single situation, jump on the grenade or take that big risk, but more often than not, if you think it through, you find the right people, you can turn the tide. So with that, everyone, see you next time. This is One Step Beyond. I'm Aram Arslanian, and Mike, drop the beat. One step. One.